1: To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to my show, the shift no one tells you about writing. I'm your host, Bianca Maray. Before we begin with today's episode, I'd just like to remind you that I'm now offering online creative writing courses. Please check my website at biancamaray.com under the courses tab for more information on how to sign up. I have another announcement, which is that we have a very exciting new feature coming up on the podcast in which two agents extraordinaire, Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency, will be reading your query letters and the first five pages of your novel on episodes of the podcast in order to give you useful critique on what works and what doesn't. We can disguise your name and the name of your novel if you would prefer to remain anonymous but this is a wonderful opportunity to get two sought-after agents feedback so that you can see where you might be going wrong and how to up your game and to learn from other writers who are in the same position as you are and who knows this might be a great opportunity to break free of the slush pile and grab their attention. Email me your query letter and the first five pages of your novel at theshutaboutwriting@gmail.com, at gmail.com letting me know which details you would like to disguise or keep private and we'll take it from there. Today's two guests have been great friends for over 20 years. Their friendship has sustained them through the ups and downs of raising kids, juggling careers, and creating new family traditions. Girls with Bright Futures, their debut novel, is a dark, suspenseful journey into the cutthroat world of college admissions that released on February 2nd. Between the two of them, they have undergraduate degrees from Princeton University and the University of Michigan, a law degree from UC Berkeley, careers in marketing. Marketing, nonprofit leadership, and biotechnology law, two husbands and four kids, three of whom have survived the college admissions process without a single parent landing in jail. It's my pleasure to welcome Tracy Dubmeier and Wendy Katzman. Tracy and Wendy, it's so wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank
2: you for having us. We're thrilled to
1: be here. There are many challenges with trying to write fiction that's based on real life. But one of the main ones for you, as I understood it, is that since your book is about college admissions in the post-Operation Varsity Blues college admissions scandal world, everyone assumes that your book was ripped from the headlines. But the truth is that when the scandal broke in March of 2019, you were both flabbergasted. Now, could you tell us why and could you also give us some backstory for the actual real-life inspiration for your writing partnership and why you wanted to write Girls with Bright Futures?
3: So uh, we have been friends for 20 years. We had for many years talked about collaborating on something. Uh, we had talked about starting businesses together. We talked about creating a board game. We And we had also done a lot of volunteer work together. So we knew we worked well together and we felt like a collaboration was inevitable for us. And so so, the inspiration for this particular project for writing fiction, we had a, a very odd set of coincidences around a period of time when our kids were applying to college. And both of our families experienced major um, health crises while our kids were going through that process. And so, for us, it was an inflection point and it gave us a lens to look at this sort of crazy, you know, difficult anxiety. Provoking time, but with a different perspective.
2: So after our families went through this very dislocating experience of these health crises while the boys were applying to college, we started talking a lot about the impact that it was having on our families, our kids, what we were seeing, the college mania, anxiety on friends on our communities and we just felt like it, this would be a really interesting topic to dive into to help us understand and make sense of what we were seeing around us.
3: So we started and early on in our collaboration, when we decided to start writing fiction together, we started working on a manuscript that was very much about friendship um, with a little dose of some illness kind of thrown in and college as the backdrop. And then as we kind of went through the process, um, fast forward a couple of years, my son was a senior in high school and applying to college and I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So as if we hadn't gotten the message the first time around <laughs> with the health crises, it was like, boom, okay, here, you. this is a life or death issue. College is not life or death. And it helped us to kind of focus even more on the college process and what that was looking like in our society currently.
1: So how long had you been working on your novel when the whole scandal actually broke? Where were you in the process? Because as I've said to the listeners before, publishing moves at a glacial pace, Something that you sell today might only be published in two years' time, and it still takes a while to write a book, and then it takes a while to find an agent, and then it takes a while for the agent to sell the book. So where were you in the whole process when this happened? Well, we were fortunate enough that we had an agent,
2: but we were working on this particular manuscript, and we had plotted out the entire story. And we were almost done with our first draft, I would say, when the scandal broke in March of 2019. and nineteen, and Yes, we were truly as you said flabbergasted. It, it really felt like the headlines had been ripped right from our manuscript and
1: we just we just couldn't believe that this was happening. <laughs> It just made us write faster. Timing is a very important aspect of publishing. Sometimes if you can just tap into a movement, something that's happening, it really helps propel your novel to the top of people's lists in terms of the things that they're interested in. And often, you know, something like this happens and there isn't time to then write a novel about it because by the time the novel's written, everybody's moved on. So what were the the huge similarities between what you were seeing playing out and what you had tackled in in the novel? That's a great question. And, you know, for us, one of the biggest, it, it was
3: definitely a lightning and a bottle kind of moment for us, I think, because we had sort of seen this in the zeitgeist, and then all of a sudden, this scandal broke. And I think one of the biggest ironies of Operation Varsity Blues for us is that it made us realize that if we could dream up a scenario, the chances were excellent that some parent somewhere had already done that or worse. And as a writer, you struggle to walk that that. line between telling a really interesting story, which requires sometimes pushing the envelope a bit, but without crossing over into caricature. And when we were writing our manuscript, we were worried a bit about whether we'd gone too far. And so the scandal was really exciting for us in that regard because, we realized that no one could ever say our story required too much suspension of disbelief.
1: Plausibility is so important in these kinds of stories. You know, so long as something is plausible and believable and so long as you've given enough specificity so you've made it feel real, like it really could happen, then people are prepared to suspend disbelief. And then, of course, you get something like this, which is kind of a gift. Was there anything about your novel that you changed after the scandal broke, to make it a bit more specific to that, or was it that the story was the story and um, you didn't need to change anything?
2: I mean, oddly enough, the story was the story. I think we dropped in one mention related to like test scores, but we just we already had the story.
3: And it's because we are two writers, we have to intricately plot. We just we can't do the pants, you know, the pants are kind of fly by the seat of your pants style that some writers are able to do. So. So we really had the entire story mapped out and we were really excited about our story. So we just kept going with it. We really didn't feel we needed to make any changes at
1: all. So something you said earlier, you said you already had the agent while you were planning the story. So tell us how that happened. Well, as Tracy had mentioned, we had originally
2: started with a manuscript that focused more on friendship with the illness and college admissions as the backdrop. And that was the manuscript that we initially used to query and ended up with a wonderful agent, Carly Waters. And that manuscript went out on submission and it was not picked up. And so we went back to the drawing board and decided to continue focusing further in on the college admissions story.
1: I love that. I love it when I hear about this initial rejection and the initial adversity and then turning that into something else because so many emerging writers get really discouraged by their rejection letters. Many of them have got novels that they've been working on for five years. They've rewritten them several times and they just kind of can't get them sold. And I think many of them give up at this point. And I love when I hear that, you know, you've had the rejection because I think for most emerging writers, as soon as you get the agent, you think, okay, this is it. The story was completely compelling enough to land an agent. So selling it is going to be easy. And of course, that isn't always the case. And as I say to my listeners, a lot of the times an editor at a publishing house may love the story, but they just don't know how to market it. They don't know how to differentiate it from other things on the market, which means the novel needs a bit of a hook. And of course, a story about women's friendship with kind of college in the background is not, if you think about it, as marketable and as compelling as a story is about college admissions. So I I love that you took that disappointment and um, and you turned it into something that then sold. Thank you. Yeah.
3: yeah, We feel really good about that. That was something that for us, we, we worked really, really hard and rejection stings. But one of the things for us is that because we've been through so much in life, we feel like we've been able to accept rejection as just part of the process and go back to the drawing board. And we're super fortunate that we have such a deep friendship that we can encourage you each other. And we can, you know, if one of us is up the other one and the other one's down, we kind of even each other out. So it's a, it's wonderful to have a partnership when you're dealing with rejection.
2: One of the things that really got us into writing, we, I mean, we started writing in our late forties after having completely different careers, having no background as writers and feeling a little bit insecure about going down this path. And we read the book Daring Greatly by Brene Brown that really changed our mindset. And so we approached this as you've got to put yourself out there. You've just got to get in the ring and you have to have courage and you've got to dream big, right? And as mothers, these are things that we were saying to our kids, but we had to be willing to do it too. And we also had to show to our kids that rejection, that is part of life and you just have to get up and keep going. And I think it was really valuable for our kids to see
1: that. The rejection shows that you're putting yourself out there. If you haven't been rejected, then you aren't putting yourself out there because there's so few writers I know who the very first thing they ever write, that gets picked up and they have huge success with. So, you know, I dare say that you aren't a writer until you have been widely rejected and then you've earned, you know, you've earned your writer status. So, uh, so I love that as well.
0: rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com
4: today. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6th at 8pm via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is
1: Can we talk about being debut authors and at a time during COVID as well, which makes it that much harder to navigate that world? Are there things about being a debut author that you dreamed about, that you were kind of disillusioned about, that you thought being a debut author means, you know, sitting, sipping cognac and smoking cigars somewhere and that didn't happen for you? Has there, has there been anything about the process that's been really eye-opening for you that you wish you'd known beforehand? Well, I don't think we realized we were going to have to be social
3: media experts. <laughs> that, that did not come naturally to us. And we fortunately have um, digital native children who helped kind of guide us down that path. So that was something, and, and that's frankly become even more important in a pandemic because there just are not that many ways to get your, get the word out about your novel.
2: Right. So it's, it's required us learning A range of new skills in addition to becoming social media experts, graphic designers, photographer, website manager. I mean, we're really as a partner, as partners, running a small business. And so there's a lot of small business owner issues that, you know, whether it's paying your bills, paying your taxes, that don't sound quite as sexy as being a debut author, but it's all part of it. And I think, you know, we dreamed of going to book signings or going on a book tour and seeing friends and family. And so we've gotten to do those things. (laughs) They just have looked a little different and they're still absolutely thrilling.
3: Right. We had our first online virtual event with a bookstore and it was really fun. Even though we couldn't be in person, we saw the chat box going by and all these lovely people, you know, it's friends and family and supporters um, were there to cheer us on. And that was really exciting. And we, um, we developed kind of a, a creative COVID safe book signing for um, this past weekend at a a local beloved bookstore called Island Books. And we set up a table outside and there were cookies that were pre-wrapped in, you know, COVID safe individual packaging. And they had a picture of the cover of our book and anyone who came to the bookstore got and bought our book, we were the outside signing with our double masks and <laughs> people got a cookie and we got to chat for a couple minutes at a safe distance. And, you know, like Wendy says, it was not exactly what we had dreamed of, but it was still an opportunity to celebrate and to meet potential readers or future readers and um, and to just enjoy the moment together.
1: Yeah. I, you know, the the book tour is the, the most It is absolutely wonderful to get to go on that. But having been on these book tours, I can tell you that there are also these moments in which we, especially as women writers, because no man writer I know has to go through this. So you land at the airport and you grubby after a day in commute and and you have to rush to your hotel and you have to quickly shower and then you have to style your hair and put on all this makeup and wear something nice and you go into the bookstore and then there is no one there. No one. has arrived for this event. And and it's not the bookstore's fault because they've marketed it, you know, and maybe this is something that wouldn't have happened to you because maybe you have family across the US and friends in every US city. But as a South African, I did not know tons of people in the US all over the place. And it was really soul crushing to kind of sit there and have gone to all this effort and flown there and nobody's there. So, you know, wonderful to have these online events where you know that friends and family are going to turn out and they're going to celebrate you and they're going to be there. And I love as well, what you said about that being a debut author is like running a small business. And there are a whole bunch of things that aren't the sexy things, unless you're paying your taxes, drinking the cognac and smoking your cigar, that probably makes it a bit more sexy. But yeah, there, there are a ton of things that even if you have a big publisher, they'll do as much for you as they possibly can. But ultimately it really is up to you to be hustling every day and to try and ensure that your book doesn't just have that two to four month shelf life on the bookstore shelf and that people keep asking for it. Have you started speaking to book clubs? Is that something that is part of your marketing plan? Uh, we are really excited to speak to book clubs. And our publisher put together
2: a fantastic book club event guide that has the usual discussion questions, um, but also recipes and a Spotify playlist and a really funny parenting quiz. And then we're also um, about to start Zooming with book clubs. So we are super excited to have the chance to Zoom into book clubs. And all of that information is on our website.
1: Yeah. Book club markets are huge because it means, you know, the whole book club buys the book. They all get together to talk about it. And what you were just saying in terms of recipes and a playlist, those are such big marketing tools that I don't think a lot of emerging writers think about because, you know, we as writers just think, okay, just write the best book that I can. But you need to remember that at some point, this book is going to be handed over to someone in sales, someone in marketing, someone in PR, and they have to try and find ways to make this book stand out from other books and find readers in completely different ways. So if you are able to include things like songs that make your own playlist while you're writing, I mean, that's something I've done with two, of my novels as I was writing them. I was listening to certain songs while I was writing just to inspire me. And so having that playlist up front helps a lot. Things like a Pinterest board, you know, if you find settings that inspire you or people who look like your characters, etc., etc. If you can come up with a Pinterest board, that's something book clubs love looking at as well as something that helps with the, with the marketing and the sales and pitching of the novel as well. From both of you, in terms of advice that you would give to emerging writers, whether it's about the writing process, which is very different for a writing duo. Obviously, if you're writing together, the process is very, very different to if you're writing by yourself. It must have pros and cons because I feel like you don't have the loneliness when you're a writing partnership, which is often the problem for writers writing alone. Is there anything in this whole process that you feel would be practical advice for those who are mired currently in the rewrites, in the drafting, et cetera, et cetera, as they dream about one day having their book go out into the world?
2: I think one of the most important things is you have to believe in yourself and you have to believe in your story because until that happens, why should anybody else? Why should an agent? Why should a publisher? Why should a reader? And so you have to be in, like a champion and in love with your story. And that starts with believing having the confidence in
1: yourself. I love that. And I love that you both weren't writers beforehand because I would say 98% of writers that I speak to were writers as kids. They were writers as teenagers. They were scribbling in their twenties and in their thirties constantly. I think you're probably the only writers I've ever spoken to who suddenly in their forties were like, oh, why don't we write a book together? I mean, I, I love that you just went for it. And let this be a lesson to all of the writers out there who sit there going, Oh, I'm not as good as Donna Tart, or I'm not as good as Delia Owens, and my, you know, my level of writing skill is not as amazing as so and so. Here you have two women. Who never even considered themselves writers. So it's so important to get that critical voice out of the way. I'll start by saying I was
3: a lawyer uh, by training and profession early on, and Wendy was a marketing executive. So we both did a lot of writing. It just wasn't fiction writing. And we were both avid fiction readers. But when we decided to just give this a go, we worked really, really hard. And that's another piece of advice that I would just give to aspiring writers. There are a lot of resources out there. and I am not kidding. When we first decided to do this, one of the first things we did was we Googled, how do you write a novel? And we, we bought books, we studied, we outlined, we you know we studied authors who we really appreciated and felt like their pacing was good or their structure was good. and we and we tried to understand how that all worked. And so we have a have a number of favorite um, craft books. And so I would say that another piece of advice would just be that, to go into it with, I'm borrowing a phrase here called a growth mindset, which is um, this pretty famous Stanford psychologist who, her name I think is Carol Dweck. Yeah. Um, And the idea is to sort of look at everything in life as an opportunity to learn and grow. And you don't have to be excellent at everything right out the gate. You just have to be excellent at the effort and trying. And so um, so for us, that's been a really animating and kind of an underpinning of all of our work. So when we finally did start really in writing in earnest, we had
1: this kind of foundation that really served us well. Which books would, or which resources would you highly recommend? You know, when you were Googling how to write a novel, were there websites that came up, were there resources that you found to be incredibly useful in terms of the books? Because are so many books out there on the market. And I find that each book speaks to a particular way of thinking and an approach. So there are people who are extremely analytical. And so a book like Story Grid is extremely helpful for people like that who view all parts of a novel, almost like a mathematical equation. And then you have Bird by Bird by Anne Lamott, which is more this intuitive approach to story writing. Which were the ones that really spoke to you?
2: Anne Lamott was definitely one of our top ones. Another one was Story Genius. Lisa Crone. That one really spoke to us, just this idea of helping us learn how to be storytellers. That was a big one.
3: And then there was one that we don't see in the literature all that often, but that we felt really was very useful, called Techniques of the Selling Writer by Dwight Swain. And it was kind of an old school. I think it was written maybe 20 or 30 years ago. I think he was a professor from University of Oklahoma, if I'm not mistaken. But it was actually really useful in terms of just understanding how to write dialogue, which paragraph does, you know, does kind of a a reaction go in and sort of there there are all these really like granular techniques that we found very useful.
1: That's wonderful. I've never, I've never heard of that book. So I must definitely look that up because, you know, when I'm teaching creative writing, these are the things that a writer needs to master. These are the tools they need to master up front before they can build up to the big stories. They need to know how to format dialogue, what goes where, what an em dash is for, how you show someone being interrupted and how that's different to somebody kind of fading out in the middle of a sentence. So yeah, all of these are very important things. Were there websites specifically? I know that I always love Readsy, R-E-E-D-S-Y, Readsy. They have some amazing, amazing resources and I I try and include their character profiles and things like that. I direct my students there. Were there other websites that you felt? I mean, when you Google, how do you write a book? I mean, what comes up <laughs> lots of stuff uh, there was one early on that we used it was called the
2: snowflake method and it was like a 10-step process that in the beginning we followed to a T, and it just took you step by step and then within each step we would step out of it and practice and read other things but it, it gave us a roadmap that at the end produced a novel. So the snowflake
1: method. Tracy and Wendy, it's been wonderful chatting with both of you. This is just so incredibly inspiring, you know, taking these awful things that happen in your life and using them as a foundation from which to spring forward into something else, not just overcoming adversity, but allowing it to give you perspective and allowing it to kind of bolster you and encourage you to try new things. And, and I know we had a discussion before on email in which you said that adversity was something that allowed you to then use humor as a coping mechanism. And you said that humor also became something that you included in your book. Would you like to talk about that briefly?
3: We as friends and as co-authors have relied on humor to get us through difficult moments. And we worked really hard, even though our book explores some dark issues, we kind of worked really hard to let this humor shine through. So one story just to kind of illustrate, and it's really from kind of our, our a more personal place, but after I was diagnosed with breast cancer, we pretty quickly realized that the best way to get through the treatment was to keep going with our work, um, even if that meant working in the chemo suite, which we did many times, and I say suite in air quotes.
2: So my job on, our, on chemo day was to get us there on time and to secure the egg salad sandwiches, from the kitchen that they had for patients and their caregivers before they disappeared because we had discovered as had a lot of other people that that was Definitely the best option available.
1: I am struggling to understand how egg sandwiches is not going to send people who are already suffering from nausea completely over the edge. I mean, if I'm sitting in a car or enclosed space like an office and someone opens an egg sandwich, how is this not making everyone sick? We have no idea, but they were really good. Like they were delicious. (laughs) So, so your, your function was like the Game of Thrones character who kind of pillages everything to make sure you've got the resources. So you exactly. ran in, got the sandwiches and got up.
3: Yeah. And so one day there was this one day that we always talk about and remember, and it was Wendy, me and another dear friend and who, and all three of us loved the sandwiches for some reason. So We were completely giddy because Wendy had gotten the sandwiches secured by 11 a.m. I was all hooked up to my poison and, and somehow we were eating our sandwiches and started sharing our most embarrassing parenting fails. And it was really a, like a beautiful game of one-upsmanship. It was like, oh, you think that's bad? We didn't hear this. And so, so we're eating our sandwiches and we're laughing our heads off and a nurse comes in and asks if everything is okay.
2: So we thought we were in trouble. Like when you get caught by the librarian and the library for talking too loud, and we're apologizing all over the place. And then the nurse says, oh no, it's okay. It's just, we don't usually hear laughter like that on this floor and all the nurses at the end of the hall want to know what in the world is so
3: funny. <laughs> it was funny. And so, you know, what what is funny to us now looking back is that as you mentioned, you know, one so one of the things they tell you when you're going through chemo is never eat your favorite foods while you're in treatment because your brain will forever associate them with nausea. And um but I still eat egg salad sandwiches because they for me they actually bring back great memories even though it was a terrible terrifying time, but they're a reminder to me of good friends,
1: and laughter, even gallows humor. It can get you through anything. And I hope you're now writing the book about epic parenting fails, because that's the book I really want to read as well. Noted. (laughs) Make a note. Thank you, Wendy and Tracy. I'm so looking forward to reading the book. Uh, It's on my to-be-read list, and uh, I'm really looking forward to that. And thank you for taking the time out to be on the show. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup